Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by our proud title sponsor, NHL Sense Arena, the next generation of off-ice hockey training for players and goalies. Look, we know how much you invest in your children's hockey development, the early mornings, the travel, and let's not forget the expenses of training for hockey camps, private ice time, the general expenses of the season. It's a lot. But wouldn't it be great to bring that on-ice practice experience home that's fun, fits into your schedule, and that's affordable? If you said yes, which I'm sure you did, you've got to check out NHL Sense Arena. It's a top-tier virtual reality training game that brings the on-ice practice experience home so you can practice anytime and anywhere, literally. You can transform any part of your home into a virtual ice rink where you're getting unlimited access to over 100 drills, training plans from top coaches and players, weekly drill challenges, and more that focus on improving hockey sense and physical cognitive skills, starting at just $33 per month. That is a lot cheaper than an hour of ice time. The physical side of hockey gets a lot of attention, but we don't focus enough on the mental side of it. It's something we talk about on this show all the time. NHL Sense Arena provides an immersive solution for players to sharpen those skills when ice time is limited or not affordable and they want to get those extra reps in. So for our listeners, NHL Sense Arena is offering an exclusive $50 off their annual plan all you got to do is head over to their website, hockey.sensorina.com. Again, hockey.sensorina.com and use our code hockey never stops and you'll level up your off-ice training by using NHL Sensorina. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us and NHL Sensorina. Enjoy this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey. Hello, hockey friends and families around the world. Welcome to another edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. You know, it's a common phrase in the hockey community that we live the game 24-7, 365. And our guest today not only seems to live by those words, but also put it into print as well for all of us to enjoy. Dr. Mike Comito is a writer and historian from Sudbury, Ontario. has a PhD in philosophy and history. And his, he's the author, I have it right here, of Hockey 365, Daily Stories from the Ice, and he's going to be the author of Hockey 365, The Second Period, which is coming out September 28th of this year. That's 2021, if you're listening to this on replay in the future. Mm-hmm. He's also the team historian for the Sudbury Wolves and writes for the LA Kings. His work has appeared in The Athletic, Vice Sports, and Sportsnet. Uh, in addition to hockey, he's also the host of The Unlikely Innovators, which highlights stories of unlikely innovation in post-secondary education and the private sector. And he is also on the board of directors for the Neo Kids Foundation, which is dedicated to raising funds for children's services, equipment, and research for Neo Kids and Family Programs and Health Sciences North in Northeastern Ontario. That's Christy Casciano-Burns and Mike Benelli. I'm Leo Elias, and this is, again, Our Kids Play Hockey. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. That's quite the, quite the intro. Appreciate it. No problem. When we do intros, we try and get everything. You know, it's, it's easy to read the back of a book, but people usually do more than just hockey, right? We try and get the full breadth of that for our audience. Uh, uh, but this show is about hockey, so should we probably start there? But so, look, word on the street is that along with uh, writing about the game, you're also a hockey player yourself. So why don't you start with just telling us about your life in the game and uh, on the ice, off the ice, and just how you've uh, made hockey part of your daily routine. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's interesting because I never played hockey competitively growing up. Um, I always loved hockey. I, you know, I look back to photographs of me playing on, you know, backyard rinks or neighborhood rinks, even frozen ponds, things like that. We moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, so like my family and I joke now about 
why didn't I end up going into hockey? And we always say it was because we moved around so often that there's never really enough time to like enroll you in, in a hockey, in a hockey program. My mom also jokes that she didn't want me to play hockey because she thought I would get hurt. So I did, uh, I, I played a lot of soccer when I was younger. And then I actually got into competitive swimming when I was 12 and I did that swim competitively at the varsity level. Um, and it actually wasn't until I was, it was just after I got married. So I would have been, um, I turned, um, sorry, I'm just trying to do some quick math in my head. It's okay. Here. It's okay. 29 <laughs> years old was the first time that I actually played hockey with like pants, shin pads, wow. like the full gear. Uh, and I remember it was like, I'd always resisted doing it. I had buddies in Sudbury here who obviously grew up playing hockey. So they were all, you know, fairly good hockey players at whatever levels they got to. And so I was always self-conscious about playing with them. They would have a once a year game on Christmas Eve where we'd all get together. And I was like, I never wanted to go out because like some of these guys played junior and I obviously, you know, played like by myself in my backyard rink when I was six years old and then never really picked it up after that. Right. I was always drawn to hockey because I love the sport. I love the feeling of, of being outside and playing on the ice. And I love the history of the game. I think that's really what kind of brought me back in hockey. And so Becoming a historian, um, you know, hockey was always in the back of my mind. Obviously, I still liked watching and following, you know, my team, the Leafs. Um, and then when I got into, you know, graduate studies at McMaster, I kind of thought, you know, all the stuff that I was doing, I was writing about the history of hunting and, you know, the history of environmental management in Ontario. I'm like, all of these same things could be applied to hockey um, and talking about the history of the sport and some of the stories of the sport. And so I got back into it that way. And then right around that time, I had a, a buddy of mine, Patty, who, he was playing in this with this group of guys and they were like people my age and guys that were older than me who I don't think had the same hockey background as a lot of my friends. They found hockey later in life. And so admittedly, we were like kind of a motley crew of players who, you know, there was a few guys who were good and then there were a few players who were bad. Um, and so he's like, this is the perfect group for you if you're, if you're worried about, you know, that you're a bad hockey player. And so it is the perfect group because I've been playing with them now for seven years. And honestly, it, it finally got me out of my shell to actually like go and put on gear uh, and actually start to play. I mean, I think just being able to play regularly over the last seven years has obviously improved my game. Um, you know, I'm obviously not a very good hockey player by any means, but I'm certainly better than I was seven years ago. Um, and I think it's ultimately, I think brought me a little bit closer and I think brought hockey, you know, even more, you know, into part of my life because it's something that I love to do. And so I think the fact that I found it, you know, as a 29 year old, doesn't really matter. I think now it's, it's, it's an even bigger part of my life now in my thirties than it was as a kid, right? Because now I'm, I'm writing about it, um, you know, for various clubs, I'm writing about it for, you know, as, uh, as an, as an author, and then I'm playing it whenever I can. And even this summer bought my first pair of rollerblades since I was a kid. And I'm literally playing, I'm playing roller hockey by myself every day at this tennis court near my, my office. Uh, just because I can't get enough of it. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a circuitous path to get me back into hockey, but that's really kind of, you know, how I started, you know, the infatuation with hockey as an early age and then kind of getting back to it as an adult. You know, I think there's a great saying that you can't start too early and you can't start too late, right? Like my attitude with hockey is whoever wants to be in the club, I don't care if you're 90, right? If you're in the club, you're in the club. And if you enjoy the game, you enjoy the game. And like, you know, I'm a weird one too. I started playing when I was 12, which is still a kid, but still by mm -hmm. hockey attributes very late. And uh, I think the truth is across the board of Christy and Mike as well, that once you're in, you're in, <laughs> there is no exiting the game and becomes, uh, I don't like to use the word obsession, but that's really what it is, but it's really more of a passion, right? It's the love mm -hmm. for the game. Um, and one of the things I love about it, and again, Christy and Mike, I want you to jump in here too, is that you can apply your love for the game in so many different ways other than playing, 
right? And that's one of the messages we try and talk about on this show that it's outside playing and coaching, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that, right? So um, I'll jump into one more question real quick. You know, we, we do like to highlight that on this show because again, people can be invo- involved in the game just outside playing. And your resume has several attributes that check this off, right? So let's just start with you being a hockey writer. You alluded to that. You've done that for the Los Angeles Kings, other hockey publications. How did you even get into that line of work? Yes, that's a great question. So that kind of goes back to, you know, that time where I was in grad school and, you know, it probably was around the time like the playoffs were in. And so I was balancing, trying to get my reading and writing done while like staying up late to watch playoff games. And it kind of struck me that I've been writing, you know, for the last several years of my life, uh, I've been writing about forest fires. I've been writing about black bear hunting, all of these things. And for an audience that I wasn't really, you know, enamored with what I was doing. Um, they were, these are for, you know, scholarly journals where typically they're behind a paywall. Typically nobody reads them. Typically they're not, you know, changing the world. Um, they're still important, but it's not as if um, you necessarily get to reap, I think, the benefits of, of writing those articles the way that you would if you're sharing it with a popular audience. And I just kind of realized that, like, everything that I've been doing, this, the skills I've been developing as a historian um, could lend themselves to writing about hockey. And as much as I knew that, like, that there was a field of sport history and within that there was a rich field of hockey history, I had never pieced that together for whatever reason. I just assumed that for me to make it as a historian, I had to kind of go at it in a different way. And I focused like heavily on environmental history as I went through graduate studies. Um, But I kind of had that eureka moment, you know, maybe as I was kind of getting a little fatigued with the work I was doing in my PhD, but I realized that like, I love hockey. I'm, you know, good at researching, decent at writing. There's gotta be something that I could do with hockey, you know, even if it's just for myself. So I just initially started blogging. I had a, I had a, my own personal blog where I was taking uh, significant moments in Canadian history and sandwiching them in between uh, previews of NHL games that evening. So I would say, you know, today is the anniversary of, uh, you know, Canada signing a fisheries uh, treaty with the United States. And here are the games that are happening tonight. And how does this tie back to Ernest LaPointe signing this, this, this memorable <laughs> treaty? And, you know, it was just like Frankenstein mashup of Canadian history and hockey that I'm sure probably didn't appeal to a large audience. There was probably the historians who liked the historical like tidbits and then the hockey fans who, you know, maybe liked my take on who was going to win the game that evening between the Canadians and the senators. Um, And then, you know, as I continue to do that, I actually did that for an LA Kings blog, the Royal half where I was doing California moments in history or moments in California history, sorry. And then, you know, Pacific division previews. Um, And I think that kind of got me a little more comfortable with writing to a broader audience, but ultimately I still think that, it was a weird concept that, you know, I don't think had a lot of mass appeal. Um, and then I think after doing that for a couple of years, I just kind of dropped, you know, the Canadian history or the California history component and just really focused on, on telling those stories. And so for a while, it was kind of me just kind of, you know, submitting ideas to places like Vice Sports saying like, would you guys do an article about this? And, you know, oftentimes the answer was no, not, not at this moment, or we're not interested in that. And that kind of went on for a long time where I was, you know, kind of just, you know, bashing my head against the wall, trying to get some exposure outside of, you know, what I was doing on my own website, what I was doing with the blog. I had some stuff with the local newspaper here, but that was still with, you know, the weird Frankenstein mashup of the history (laughs) and the, in the hockey. And then eventually I kind of landed on, you know, doing some more, you know, pure historical stories for vice sports that kind of led to a springboard doing some stuff with Sportsnet, And it just, I think really the persistency of continuing on with that, I think that I had really discovered a passion for, for researching some of those moments in hockey history, some well-known, some not as well-known. 
And just, I don't think it really deterred me that despite the fact that I had, I heard a lot of no's and rejections. Um, I, I eventually did get some yeses and those, I think those led to the building up of the portfolio that I had, which led to the first book. Uh, and then certainly I think over the last few years with the Kings and the Wolves, um, I've been able to kind of go a little bit further. And then I think it all just kind of comes together. And that's what really kind of gave me, I think the, the impetus to write the first book was, was getting enough of those stories under my belt that I said, you know, obviously I didn't have, I didn't, I hadn't written 365 stories, but I had a nice little smattering of, of, of moments in hockey history. Is there a way that we can kind of take what I've done with vice and Sportsnet and maybe blow that up a little bit bigger to make a book. And that's, and that's really how it kind of led to that, that first book. I love your determination. I mean, that's the stuff that great hockey players are made of, just so you know, Yeah. <laughs> as you know. What I love too is that the kind of history that you're able to dig up are these golden nuggets, all these little, you know, essence of hockey that you unearth that a lot of us never even know. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think that that's definitely been, you know, a hallmark of my personality is just a persistency. I think that I probably sent, you know, quite a few follow-ups to editors over the years that they probably consider me more of a pest than persistent. But, <laughs> but again, sometimes you it's, are it's not, a it, hockey player. See, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I would embrace that pest role for sure, just to get under people's skin. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes, you know, it depends on the freelance budget where things are at. So I knew that it wasn't all my ideas weren't terrible. I think it was just a matter of finding that that when having the stars align and having that perfect opportunity. Um, and I'm glad that I, I kept at it, obviously, because I think I could have given up early on and just kind of, you know, focus my efforts on my own website, which would have been fine. Uh, but I really did kind of want to to bring the stuff that I was doing to the masses, because, again, I like being able to share those stories with people. I like them connecting with those stories, whether it's, you know, an obscure moment in hockey history or, you know, some of the stuff that I'm doing for the Kings, you know, sharing, you know, something about a player that maybe the fan base wasn't aware of. And I think that right. that's that's always great when you get that immediate connection you know, with fans telling you that they appreciated that story or I learned something that I didn't know before. And that's, that was the stuff that I didn't get when I was doing my historical work was because you might get that down the road from colleagues, but when you're publishing for scholarly articles or scholarly journals, sorry, you just really don't get that, that connection and that sense of, you know, these words made an impact in somebody else's life. You know, Mike, I want to, I want to pull on a thread here because um, you're bringing up something I think is actually really important to our audience. So you, you said that you kind of started making this transition when you were in the middle of your PhD or towards the end of your PhD. So how old were you at that time? Uh, so I started my PhD when I was 25. So I would say, yeah, I started really starting to think about writing about hockey um, just before my, uh, my 30th birthday. So Excellent. I yeah. got married in, in 2014 and then started playing hockey in the fall of 2014. And, and that was roughly around the time that that I started, you know, blogging for myself and then eventually springboard to those other opportunities. So yeah, this, this journey started in your thirties, right? And the, the reason I want to bring this up is because I have had multiple people, even recently uh, that I know, listen to this show, ask me, Hey, listen, I really love the game. I want to get involved in the game. Like, like you're doing. And then they, they don't say, how do I do it? They say, do you think I can do it? That's the question I get. And I understand why they're asking that. And especially for the parents and the coaches out there, I understand. Cause if, if look, if you have kids, you know, you're 30 plus uh, career changes or, or life changes are not the easiest thing to do. It's not like when you're 22 and you mm -hmm. can snap your fingers and pick another major, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and I want to highlight that with your story because you made a decision. You were going to go for it. As Christy said, you were persistent, not pesky really. <laughs> okay. And you found a way within your niche to make hockey a massive part of your life, right? And off the ice. Um, 
And what I told the person that asked me that, just following up on that, I said, you can do whatever you want to do, but you got to put in the time, understand that it's a little bit of a journey involved. And if the passion's there, it'll see you through. Uh, and you've totally done that. But I, I don't want that to be lost on the audience. To, 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 to transition like that when you did is not easy. Uh, and as you said, it, it is going to be frustrating at times. You probably got a hundred no's before you got a yes, but you did, right? And again, if you guys didn't hear the intro, this man has written books. He writes for the Kings. All right. He, he's in vice sports. He's all over the place. And that actually brings me to the next question, um, which is one of my favorites. So I, I don't know if you know this, Mike, but you're among friends here. Uh, everyone here is either an author or was fathered by an author. Mike, Mike uh, Benelli knows who I'm talking about right now. <laughs> um, so one of the things I find funny about hockey fans and the hockey community is, you know, like most sports, you get people who've been watching the game two, three, four, five decades, if not more. And they say, well, I'm a historian. I, I know everything, right? Well, you're very knowledgeable is my answer to that. You remember things that happen. But to be a hockey historian is another level. And you are, sir, a hockey historian. You are the team historian for the Sudbury Wolves of the OHL. So I want you to jump into what does that job entail? Why did you jump into that role? And, uh, and, and just explain it to us because I'm fascinated by hockey history and people that, that do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, I think there's the, the great thing that I've learned, you know, over the last, you know, five years or so, it's just like, there are so many people, there's such a rich hockey history community out there. Um, you know, I'm a member of the Society for International Hockey Research and the members in that group, the amount of knowledge uh, they have is incredible. There's, there's times when, you know, I think I've, I've, I have a fact that is confirmed by, you know, NHL accounts. And then I send it to the group to see, and they're like, no, that's, that's wrong. And they can <laughs> show me exactly why. And it, it's, it's incredible. The level of detail that, that they have, it's a great resource. Again, if, uh, if any of your listeners are, are in that uh, like hockey history, like I can't say enough that, you know, being a member of that group is, is, is totally worth the, the annual membership dues. Um, it's just a great access to a lot of, you know, brilliant people who spend their lives, you know, studying and researching the game. But, but in terms of how I kind of got into, you know, becoming a the team historian for the Wolves, um, it's actually a funny story too, again, of the, the theme of persistence. Um, you know, I had a, a colleague and friend of mine, Mark Kuhlberg and I, who were both hockey fans. You know, he's a history professor. He was my advisor when I did my master's. And him and I were talking about like, you know, I've got this new interest in hockey. And, you know, he'd done a little bit of hockey writing in, the, in his past and obviously was a was a fan of the game, spends a lot of his time off the ice referee or off, off out of work refereeing. So we talked about like, it'd be really cool to do a, a book about the Sudbury Wolves. We both live in Sudbury. You know, it's a, you know, treasure team among the community. It'd be really cool to do a book. And at the time the Wolves were coming up to their 45th anniversary in the OHL. And so admittedly, probably not the best milestone because no one really celebrates, you know, certainly people celebrate 45th wedding anniversaries, but it's not as if we're doing an unveiling for the 45th anniversary. I think 50, 50th anniversary is, is the notable one, but we didn't want to wait the five years. So we went to the team. We tried to pitch them on the idea of, of doing a book for the 45th anniversary. They were, I think, rightfully reticent about doing that. Um, the conversation continued for, for quite a few months. I think they were open to the idea of a book, but I think it was just kind of wrapping their minds around the logistics of doing it. How would this happen? Is 45 really the number we want to focus on? <laughs> So like after it kind of went nowhere for a little while, I kind of just left it and I went back to the team and I said, you know, listen, I'm still really, and I, at that point I had done the Wolves win. They did a really deep playoff run in 2007, going all the way to the OHL uh, championship final. They lost, but it was a really memorable run for a lot of people in Sudbury and for the team. 
Um, so I did a 10 year like oral history of that run with a lot of the players who were involved. So I did this story just as a freelancer. And then I kind of went back to the team and said, you know, that story that we did, we could do more of those and you can have that immediate connection with the fans. Right. I know that the book is still an idea that we'd want to do, but you know, a book takes sometimes in this case, year, it would take years for us to get it ready. The 50th anniversary is not for another seven years at that point. Um, but if you hired somebody as a historian, you could have them pump out these stories and you can find new ways to connect with your fan base, young and old about some cool moments in the team's past. And I think for me, the best part about, you know, being the team historian is, is certainly obviously the research component and then sharing those stories from the past. But I think as a team historian, a big part of what I was doing, you know, when I was, you know, doing that role heavily was engaging with alumni. Um, Cause I think that that's, you know, one of the, the key roles of a historian for a club is that, a lot of the stories and information you're going to get are from past personnel and players um, who, who lived it, right? And certainly you're going to cross-reference that and back that up with, you know, secondary sources and other primary sources. But to be able to talk to those players and to those coaches or managers, wherever they may be, you know, that is your, that is your conduit to a lot of that information. And I think at the junior level, having that role is even more important because, you have players who come through and they sometimes only stick around for a year, maybe two years, you know, they're not there very long. And I think with the other thing with junior hockey players that they don't all go on to have professional hockey careers, right? You know, they don't all go to the NHL. Some of them don't even go on to play, you know, pro hockey, or if they do play pro hockey, they don't, they don't spend a career in pro hockey. They play for a few years and then they get it. They get a, they get a job. And I think it's still important to highlight those, you know, the, those journeys that those players have had, they've gone on to become, you know, members of the community as, you know, as, as lawyers or firefighters or whatever it may be. Um, and they're still worthy of celebrating. And so I think that was really a cool thing that the Wolves did by having that team historian role, because I think it gave them another way to connect with their alumni outside of their usual channels that by having this ambassador of the team talk to these, you know, alumni about, you know, what, what do you recall from that 2007 run, but also, you know, what are you doing with your life now? Like, what is life like for you now? Uh, you know, and so I think that that's probably been, I think the thing I prided myself on most with being, you know, the team historian for the Wolves and even with the role that I do with the Kings is, is you have that opportunity to connect with the alumni and make them feel that they're part of that, that club's family. And I think that that goes a long way, whether or not, you know, they think about it in the moment, but it's good to get checked in on. Right. And I think whether it's a story about the miracle on Manchester or, you know, the 2007 run that the Wolves had. Um, I think that those little check-ins, um, you know, even if it's just from a guy like me, I think could go a long way. And I think that's where I see the value of having somebody on your staff who, who is in kind of that heritage or alumni position. You know, I'll add to that too, that uh, even at the youth levels, right? This is something I speak about. Mike, I'm going to ask you to talk about this in a minute, Benelli, um, too. You know, identity is one of the, the major factors that I apply when I'm building teams, right? And a big part of that identity is knowing who you're playing for. Um, and, and I would even imagine, even up at the OHL level, this happens, but I, I'd say a majority of players, not so much parents, but players come into an organization knowing almost next to nothing about the organization. And I'm, and I'm talking about even, again, the youth hockey team your kid plays for, for our audience, right? How long has your organization been around? Who are the players that have been there? What is the team history? What championships have they won? What do they stand for? Um, if you can connect that history, that identity to the players, it creates something huge. And what it creates is there was a team before me. There's going to be a team after me. I'm part of this team right now. It's a major factor to, to winning, right? Mike, I wanted you to just give your comments on that too, because again, Mike 
I, 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 I gotta go back. The other Mike, the Mike we're interviewing uh, is making some great points here that, you know, I think every team should have someone in a role, maybe not to a full-time historian role, but a role that knows the team history and that can express it to the players and the coaches and everybody else. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt, Mike. I mean, I think what you're saying, you know, I, I, and I distinctly, I think I just saw that clip of, of Lee, you know, in his teaching, you know, just about knowing your history, knowing who came before you, knowing who built uh, the program before you and, and how that helps you in the future. Right. I think at the youth level, it's brilliant. Uh, so much junior hockey too, is these are the guys that don't go pro and the players that don't go on to hockey careers, the doors it opens up because they knew how players came through the program. I mean, I'm sitting here right now in a rink with the, the Riley family, you know, doing, I think this is like their 52nd year of summer hockey school and the history of like the Rileys. Right. And, and when you come in as a player or a staff member or somebody that's working with them, you know, that history, it's, it's, it, it builds a culture and it solves a lot of other issues, you know, especially if it's a positive culture, like you're saying with Sudbury, you, you find those positive pieces of the culture that are out there and then you build on that. And I think, you know, maybe every program can't have an historian, but they certainly could have people that archive and keep right. this information and make sure that it doesn't just, you know, that trophy you see in the back, you know, of the, of the, the rink doesn't, nobody, nobody knows what it is because there's really no story behind it. So I, and I, so I think with the technology we have today, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of young people that can, you know, take your lead and say, wow, just with a little research and, you know, some hard, uh, you know, work of making phone calls and, and searching the internet and, you know, being able to find that history to build culture in organizations is, is great. I mean, I know like my son and my guy, you know, my guys are pretty addicted to hockey historian stuff and they love hearing like when they hear about players, like I didn't know that player played there. Or, I didn't know that player came from that town or I didn't know that player did this. You know, those, those are great things for your, your current players and the, the ability for your alumni to be recognized as well. Right, and, and I would love to hear some advice from Mike. Um, uh, how do we get our organizations to do that? Because I think every rink in the country could do a little bit of research and uh, uh, share their identity with all the players that walk through the door. So, you know, when you walk in, you're part of something really special. What suggestions would you have for parents and kids? Yeah, I think that, I think, you know, reaching out to the clubs and, and finding out what have they done in the past uh, to celebrate or preserve the team's history. Um, you know, do they have an appetite for doing that in the future? Because I think, you know, especially in my role, I think it's important to, to remember as well that like my, my official capacity with the Sudbury Wolves isn't full-time. You know, I have a, I have a full-time job here in Sudbury at Cambrian College, but you know, they, I think they found somebody in me who was passionate about documenting the team's history and was willing to put in the time after hours to, to, you know, connect with alumni, to do the research on some of the cool things that, you know, we take for granted. There's an example of, uh, you know, Sudbury, the Sudbury arena is, is a very old barn. Um, and one of the hallmarks of that barn is that we have a, a stuffed wolf that hangs in the rafters that's on a, on a pulley system. And whenever the home team scores, uh, we've got this you know, blaring train horn that goes off and then the wolf gets, you know, pulled out over, over, over the visitor's bench and just kind of just hovers there and then goes back to its corner. So one of the stories that I did was that obviously like everyone who goes to Sudbury arena, like that's the first thing you see if the home team scores and, you know, and the, the, that is always the best, I think is taking a newcomer to the Sudbury arena and looking at their face when they see this for the first time, because 
it's it's so kitschy and people don't really uh you don't really have a reference point for something like that but you know i did a story about like where did that tradition come from when did they start doing that and like there there was you know went back to it predated the team's arrival in the ohl it was something that they used to do you know back in the you know in the 50s and 60s to try to you know bring people get people excited about the game um so i mean all that to say that there's there's a lot of clubs whether it's the junior level or you're playing, you're talking about the minor level who have you know, supporters who have been a part of the team for many, many years. And I think that in Sudbury, you could have picked from, you know, a number of unofficial historians who have been, you know, documenting the club's history, at least, you know, for their own self or among, you know, their family or friend group who you could have picked to, to do this role. So I think that there's no shortage of people who are willing to put in the time, I think, to document that and put some stuff on paper. And I think it's a great way for sure to, to help your players, whether they're at the junior level or even younger, to feel that they're a part of something bigger. Um, because I think that that is, that is probably one of the coolest things about the job is, is connecting you know, fans and players with the people who came before them. I think when you look at an arena like Sudbury, when you go to games, there's a lot of you know, older, older folks who'd been there back in the heyday in the 70s when you had you know, Ron Dugay, Mike Felino, Randy Carlisle. They remember those glory years. And then you've got, now they're bringing their grandchildren, right? And so you can kind of bring these stories together to remind them of when they were younger going to those games. And now they're kind of continuing that tradition with their kids and their grandkids. And I think that's just a really great way to kind of bridge the gap between generations of fans. Completely agree with you. And I always say, you know, if you're going to wear a team jacket, team hat, team jersey, it's not just for that season, right? It represents Mm -hmm. something much, much bigger. And uh, people like you are the people who put the dots together, as you just said. I think that's really important, right? Now, I, I do want to jump into your larger publication here. This is, again, Hockey 365. This is out now. Uh, the new one's coming soon. So the reason I want to bring this up, Mike, is he's uh, just going through this. I'm going to show the audience. These are not like one-sentence blurbs in here, right? Every day of the year is represented, okay? And they are in-depth and insightful into some really great moments in the game. Uh, could you tell us about the research for this book and then the process of getting it published? Because like, like, to me, like, it sounds campy, but this is kind of a must-have if you're a hockey fan. You know what I mean? Like, it's got everything. Tell me about this a little bit. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so the story for that is, um, so this is probably around um, the winter of 2017. Um, I had been writing for, for Vice now for, I guess, half a year, and I'd you know, done some of those other self-publications and you know, the blogging I'd done with the Royal half. And I, I think I, at that point had a story under my belt for Sportsnet, And I was starting to kind of look at my CV and I, you know, I had, a, I had quite a few articles written for vice and I was thinking like, these are cool moments in, in hockey history. Like what if I had, if I took those stories and then I had those longer versions that I'd done for vice sports. And then in between, I kind of sprinkled in the other moments that happened in between those dates. And so I was actually this, so this is actually a good story, I think. Um, like, I was on a beach in Mexico, 2017. Um, my wife good and I start. went away. It's a good start to the Yeah, story. it's a good start. <laughs> you know that there's a, yeah, I was on a beach in Mexico, definitely had a beer in my hand, uh, looking out at the water. We were on a vacation. My, my daughter at that point was four months old, so we went away with another couple who had a son that was just a few weeks older than our daughter. So it was our first, it was my first time at an all-inclusive. Um, obviously, with, a, with an infant, it was a little more challenging, but still had a great time. But I was I was reading Val James. We've all been there on this show. Just say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'll take I'll take a vacation. You know, doesn't matter who who's coming along with me. You know, four four month old or four year old, I'll yeah. I'll happily take the time away and just kind of recharge the batteries. But but anyway, I was I was on the beach and I I brought Val James' book and he was obviously the first uh, Black American player to play in the NHL. 
And I just remember reading his book and, you know, I really enjoyed it, but I, that was the moment where I said to myself, I want to write a hockey book. Like this is the stuff that I read about all the time. Like in my spare time, I was only reading hockey books. I had stopped. Like I was still at that point. I had finished my PhD. I was under contract to turn my dissertation into a book. Um, but that was going to require a lot of work on my part to actually make that happen. And I just, my heart wasn't into it because, you know, every day I'd come home from work and I'd be like, I don't want to go back and go through all this old research again. I had to do new research. It was just going to be this, this very long process. And it was at that moment in Mexico where I'm like, you know what, the hockey, I want to write a hockey book. I don't want to wait. So I got home. I made an outline on the plane ride home about like what I wanted to do. And it was essentially an early version of hockey 365. I was going to do a story for every day of the year. I get back home. I email the university press and say like, I, I respectfully would like to get out of this contract. Um, which they were, they were happy with because there was no money exchange. So it's not as if an investment was lost. Um, so I, I went to work on, on trying to find an agent because I wanted to go the official route and, and get it published. And I got to work with an agent. It was my first time, you know, publishing a book. So he kind of, you know, helped me through it. We found a, gr a great publisher, independent publisher here in Canada and Toronto called Dunder Press. And from there, the idea kind of evolved to, you know, you shouldn't take you shouldn't take those stories that you did exactly as you written them before for Vice. They should all be one page. So you know now the work became a little bit more intensive because I thought that you know in between those larger stories I would have maybe a paragraph. But I think we all agreed that for the uniformity and look and feel of the book to have you know one story per day and have them all a page was the goal. And so um, yeah, it was a wild process because I officially signed the contract. In August, the first manuscript was due in January. So I had six wow. months or so to really confirm all 365 stories I wanted to include, to do all the research, corroborate the research as best as I could, and then submit it on time and then go through the, you know, the editing and, and proofing process. So um, needless to say, maybe we get into this a little bit later, but I, I gave myself a little more breathing room when I wrote the second book because... <laughs> It was, it was a whirlwind trying to get that first book done. At that point, you know, my daughter had just turned one when I was probably in like the thick of it. So needless to say, I was busy, but it was something where, again, I obviously, it was always my goal to publish a book. I didn't think it would be a hockey book, um, you know, if I were to look back five years ago. Uh, but, uh, but I was committed to the process and it just gave me that passion for it that I obviously didn't have with the other book project I was working on. And as much as I look back and say, you know, that was a crazy time in my life. I'd never do it again. I obviously did do it again because <laughs> it, it is a fun process. Um, you know, despite the fact that writing is, is a solitary effort most of the time, you know, once your words kind of get out into the world and you see people enjoying it and telling you that, you know, their kid read the book cover to cover that, you know, it's all worth it in the end. You know, I'll say a couple of notes here, uh, you know, at least with the publishing process, my, my uh, publisher told me when my first book was coming out, she goes, whatever you think you're going to write, it's not going to be that when you're done. That's true of every book I've ever written. And just on the note you said, Mike, my first book is dedicated to my son. And I wrote in there for letting me write during his naps, because <laughs> I think he was between birth and one when I wrote my very first book. And I, and I really, I wrote when he was sleeping because there was no point of doing it when he was awake, but it is an amazing process. And, and again, look, for those, of you, for those of you who can see this or even listening, the book is over 365 pages, but the good news is you can read one story a day for a year and it's worth it. You don't have to be sliming through this thing. Yeah, the other thing too is 
I think it's important to note this, man. There, it's every day of the year. There's a whole off season every year. So you, you had to find things, right? Like, I mean, or was that the easy part of the process? I, I'm, I'm guessing from October till you know July, June, July is probably uh, not easier, but there's there's plenty to pick from, right? But when you get into those dog days of the summer, was that hard for you to find stuff, or is there's always something happening in the game? Yeah, I, I think. It's, uh, I initially did, you know, going into that thinking like, yeah, the dog days of summer hit, you know, after free agency, after the buzz of free agency in the early parts of July. And then like from, you know, mid July until, you know, preseason in September, outside of maybe like the world cup of hockey and, you know, the Canada cups of the past, there's really not a lot going on, but I think I use that to my advantage because there obviously were still notable signings and moves that had happened in the summer. Um, but what I did was obviously rather than focusing on just, you know, uh, Archer Zerbe got signed by the Hurricanes this day, there's obviously nothing exciting about that transaction, um, like on that actual day of the year, because he put pen to paper, but he obviously didn't start playing for the Hurricanes, you know, for another few months. And I think you, you, can, you can use those dates to think outside the box to say, well, what, you know, what happened to him when he went to the Hurricanes? And we know that he obviously kind of Right. His career had a bit of a rejuvenation. He was a dynamo when he was playing right. for the Hurricanes. Took him to a couple. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, and he had all these, you know, interesting stories before that, you know, when he was with Vancouver and, you know, not necessarily getting the opportunities that I think he, he probably would have had at that point in his career. He also got his hand bit by his dog and there was possibility of nerve damage and not being able to play again. So, like, there was all sorts of things where you're like, you can write a story about, about Urbe at any time of the year. Um, and you can kind of include those as a way of kind of getting to leading back to that, uh, right. that initial date where this is important to Carolina Hurricanes history because he signed on that day. But ultimately, you can go backwards or forwards with how you approach it. So to be honest, I really did enjoy those summer months because it kind of lets you go off the board. Um, obviously, when you pick a game like, you know, Wayne Gretzky scored his, you know, 800 second career right. goal in this right. game, you're kind of constrained by you know, well, let's set up the goal and the play. Like, how did it actually happen? Who was assisting on that goal? What was the outcome of the game? And then you don't really have a lot of room after that to kind of lead up to that goal or what happened after that goal. But I think in the summer months, you have way more flexibility to kind of just go in a completely different right. direction. Right. So the, audience, the audience, I think, is totally, totally understanding of that too. I have to ask this question. This one's probably more for me, but just as a writer myself, is there a day of the year now that you just hate because you couldn't find anything for that day that, you know, I, I, I'm telling like a story, like the publishers call, we need the book. We need the manuscript. And you're like, man, July 12th. I have nothing for the, is there a day of the year that you had to fight for or, or did they all kind of come naturally? Uh, no. Yeah. To be honest, like there was nothing where I, I think, and I, I can't even remember the date, but I know it was in November, but when I submitted the first book, um, they came back to me like probably like a few weeks after. And they said, you're missing a day. And, uh, so that I, I, interesting. I yeah, so like at that point, you know, I had, I, I and when, when you're doing this particular book, because like each story is one page, you get into a rhythm of how you construct those pages and those right. stories. Right. So like when you're in the writing process, like you're like a fine tuned machine. Like I know how to crank out 350 word stories and, and like open them and close them. So that they're neatly encapsulated. And then you kind of just, you're in a rhythm and you're on a roll. But once you stop doing that, it's hard to kind of go back to that. So I remember when they told me, you know, you're missing a day for, it was November. I can't remember the exact date, but I, I panicked because I'm like, oh man, like now I've got to do this. Like the book's already, we've already submitted it. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I've, I thought I've exhausted all my options. And so I ended up finding it was when, uh, when the San Jose Sharks traded Mika Kiprasov to the Flames. 
It obviously worked out very well for the Flames. The pick that the Sharks got back, they ended up picking right. Vlasic with it. So that worked out really well for the Sharks. So not that I, uh, but whenever I see those names, I always think back to like, you know, sweating it out of my basement, trying to get this story like out in time to get it to the editors. Um, but yeah, for the most part, uh, I, I can't really identify a date where there was any, any no, challenge. With it. I think, I, I think like hockey history, there's always, there's always something to cover. Right. And I think that as we saw last year with the 2020 playoffs, like we now, and even these playoffs, we have now like significant dates in July, August, September that we never had before. Right. right. So I think looking ahead to the future, you're going to be able to look back and talk about Stanley cup final in July and talk about the Stanley cup being awarded in September. And you know, that's, that's obviously going to give me more material and more, uh, more dates to draw from. Right. There's, there's so much history in your book, a wealth of history. Um, It's fun to dive into that. Do you have a favorite as you look back at this book? And was there one moment that you thought this is a story I never heard of. I can't wait to share it. This is, just a fantastic piece of hockey history. Um, yeah. So actually what I'll, what I'll say is from the, maybe from, from the first book, I think the story that always you know sticks out for me was I wrote about Austin Matthews making his debut for the Leafs and he obviously scored four goals, which was a you know modern NHL record, but I remember the, sp- yeah. the spin that I put on that story was that for Leafs fans, it was kind of one of those, like, where were you moments? You, you know, like, who were you with? Where were you watching the game that night? And for me, you know, my daughter Zoe was, uh, she would have been just under two weeks old at that point. And so we had these maple leaf pajamas for her that were too big, but it was the first game of the season. So, you know, she had to put the pajamas on. So I was watching the game with her. She was sleeping. So she obviously wasn't watching the game. And my wife was with us and, you know, she's not a huge hockey fan. And we just remembered the goals, him just like lighting the lamp. And my wife's like, is this normal? And it's like, no, this is, (laughs) this is unheard of. This is like an incredible night. And so for me, like, that was just a really cool story because like, that was the first time my daughter and I watched a hockey game together. Um, and I know that there's probably a lot of Leaf fans out there who can recall, I watched this game with, you know, my brother, I watched this game with my buddy and, and, and on and on about who they, who they were with and where they were watching the game. And so for me, there's a personal connection to that story um, that I think a lot of people kind of put themselves in, the, in, in this, not in the same shoes as me, but I think they can think back to whether it's the Austin Matthews night or any other game where like, who did you experience that game with? And what do you remember about that experience with that person? Um, As far as stories that, you know, that I think I was excited to share, um, there was one in the second book that's coming out in September where I was writing about Terry Harper going to the, the Kings or no, he's going to, he was going to Detroit from the Kings. And I was just writing about that. But as I was doing my research, I discovered that he initially, he initially refused to report to Detroit because he had not that long ago had signed an extension with the Kings. And he felt as though the Kings had, uh, had signed that agreement in bad faith by trading him that he had, you know, in his mind signed that deal to stay in LA and for them to go around and trade him to Detroit was kind of a breach of contract because, you know, in his mind, he was staying in LA. And so he actually, he was, he set in forth a motion to sue the Kings and to sue the NHL. Um, and it was only after the Red Wings agreed to renegotiate his contract that he dropped the lawsuits against the Kings and the, uh, and the, and the league. And certainly there's a lot of, I'll, I'll say there's probably a lot of hockey historians out there who probably know that, but I think for a lot of folks, like that's, right. that's not common knowledge. Right. And so I thought that was a really cool one because I think I could have ended the story just on, you know, you know, what he'd done to get to that point in his career. Cause he recovered from significant burns as a kid to make the NHL 
Um, you know, he's a big part of that Kings franchise early on. And then he went to Detroit as part of that Dion trade. Uh, but I think it was just kind of cool when you find those little nuggets where you didn't necessarily know that going into the story. But once you find it, you're like, I have to share this. This is now a part of the story, right? And I think that's how I ended that story in particular, was just kind of focusing on, you know, the litigation that he was going to he was going to proceed with, right? And he was still playing at that point. He agreed to go to Detroit. And he was playing games with Detroit while he still had those, you know, those 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 lawsuits pending. But uh, but ultimately, were able to kind of squash those. But uh, but interesting nonetheless, because it wasn't something I had dotted down in my outline when I went into write it. That story about Harper. You know, Mike, I got to tell you, our audience, including me, are just like, man, I got to get a coffee with this guy. Just sit down and talk <laughs> hockey with him for a few days. Um, you know, it's funny about the Austin Matthews stories. I can tell you where I was when that happened. And I'm not even a Leafs fan. I'm, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. Hockey fan first, but uh, Flyers faithful. But, you know, I was on my couch in Delaware with my buddy watching that game. That's how impactful that game was. Uh, I'll never forget him just walking down the board, slicing in front of the net, scoring, and then just acting like he had done it 500 times before. Um, yeah. He's a real talent there. Um, you know, another, another question I want to ask, um, this is one that intrigued me. When you write this book, you know, when you walk through an incredible amount of hockey history, uh, you, you probably start to see some congruencies, right? Uh, or some common threads. You know, what did you learn diving into the game at that level, right? So again, a lot of us know our team histories, uh, or they might know a player, right? But I mean, you, you've, you've gone into the depths of hockey history, right? And when you come back up for air, if you've done that yet, right? Wh what did you notice? Like, what do you see there that maybe the common hockey fan doesn't see? I think one of the things that I was most struck, you know, by doing, I think the two book projects was that I think that even in the realm of hockey history, a lot of the stories that I think we hold near and dear I was surprised by how much I had still learned in that process and how I think even some of those stories that we regard very highly maybe didn't happen the way that we think they did. Um, and that's thanks to a lot of the work that had been done by, you know, other hockey historians and, you know, journalists and writers that came before me. And I think that was one of the coolest things was, you know, going into a story like the example I just mentioned with Terry Harper is thinking you knew something and then, you know, finding a new thread to kind of explore. Um, you know, and I think that was, I think that was always the, the case with these two books is obviously, you know, I want to write these stories so that they're fun and accessible so that anybody can read them, whether or not you're a, you know, you're an adult or you're a kid who's fascinated about hockey history. I wanted to write them in a way that that's fun and that anybody could read them. But I really did strive to like to be as accurate as I could possibly be within a 350 word story. Um, I try to provide you know, as much nuance as I could within those confines, knowing that there's an opportunity here to educate, you know, especially younger readers about the, the history of the game and some of its notable players and, and people who would kind of come through. But, you know, I think for me, that was always kind of the thing was just kind of coming back out of this process, just like learning and knowing so much more than I did before that, right? Because again, you've got these, these dates where, you know, and I, this is a big part of why I got into the, this format for the book is because I share a lot of these dates on Twitter where, you know, I do the on this day, this happened in hockey history. And I mean, a tweet is two, like 280 characters, right? So, I mean, you don't really have a lot of opportunity to kind of highlight what happened after that date or what happened before that date. And I think it's just, I think that process of going into it and doing all of that research and, and finding new angles to explore on maybe, you know, stories that we've heard to death, but maybe there's a different way of, of, of kind of looking at it. You know, for me, I think that's just always what I come away with is that the game is, is the hockey history is not done. It's always evolving. There's always new ways of exploring it, of interpreting it. There's new lenses to look back on some, you know, past moments. And so I think that that for me is just kind of, 
just kind of uh, like, I guess it's kind of a, uh, you know, always finish that book project. You're happy that it's done. You're, you know, you know, you know, feel that accomplishment that it's done. But I think just that feeling of knowing that, you know, you've uh, you've learned a lot more and you've grown, I think, as a, as a hockey historian, and you're able to now share those findings with the world. I think that's what really I've kind of come away with from those two books. And hopefully that kind of that resonates with readers as well, that uh, that, again, this is this, the history of the sport is is always going to grow. There's always going to be new stories to tell, as we've learned with the past few years with the pandemic, that uh, it's going to throw curveballs and we're going to have new stories to tell in July and August and September. Um, but I think that's always just what I come away with is just that uh, just a better appreciation for the sport and its history. Uh, and just so excited to see where it goes so that we can look back and, and tell those stories from the past. Absolutely, man. I, I love the way you said that. It was really eloquent. And I'll tell you that it, it, it makes you love the game even on a different different level, right? You know, again, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a coach, I'm a player, but, you know, when you get into the hockey history, again, it's like we talked about earlier, like you feel more part of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a really quick funny story. I remember I, I, I uh, at a yard sale or something, I got this kind of history of the NHL book and it was written in the seventies. So it's pre Gretzky. Right. And it was funny to read through this. Cause like when you don't have the eighties on the history is written in a very different way. You know, they talk about Gordie Howe very differently in that book or even the players before. Um, and like you said, the game is always evolving and ironically enough, not the first pandemic to affect the NHL, but first <laughs> pandemic in recent years, right. It, it, it's true. And there's never going to be enough content. So uh, just before we close out, I did see it was noted on your Twitter profile that you're a girl dad. I was told mm-hmm. you have two daughters. Uh, is hockey in their future? So, yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, Zoe is my oldest and she's she'll be five at the end of September. And so we she played hockey uh, this past winter. So that was the first time, you know, she had ever played hockey and the first time that I had been a part of hockey at an organized level. Uh, and so that was you know, she says now that she doesn't want to play hockey again. Um, I'm not sure if that's just the particular time of the day of the week that we asked her. And, you know, it's, you're going to get a no, regardless if I asked her if she wanted to go swimming or if she wanted to go play soccer, I probably would have got the same response from her. Um, but it was, it was, it was honestly so much fun. I think this past season with her and sharing that, that experience with her. Um, we had got her on skates the previous year before the pandemic hit, um, you know, and she was determined to skate on her own. Like when we were, we go to public skating, she would resist using the, like those orange skating aids. She didn't want us to hold her. It's like, well, I have to hold you. Like you, you don't even know how to, to skate yet. So you're going to, you're going to get hurt as much as like, she has a helmet on, but you still don't want her, uh, you know, bailing all over the ice. So, but she was determined. And so when we said, do you want to play hockey? She was pretty excited to, you know, cause she was going to get her own stick. She was going to get gloves and all this gear, so I think the part of, of that, she really loved that. But I think, you know, it was really great to just watch her develop her own interest in the sport, you know, over that, uh, you know, we had played from September until we got shut down um, in February or so. But it was just kind of nice just to see her kind of improve her, her skill set over those weeks. Uh, it gave us an opportunity to bond, you know, to and from the rink. Me hopefully able to offer her a little bit of advice as to what she should be doing. Um, but it was just a really cool moment. And again, whether or not she plays again, uh, that's up to her. But uh, but my my youngest daughter Sophia just turned one, so I, there's an, always an opportunity with her. Uh, but we'll we'll see what what she wants to do. But either way, um, that that year that I had with her at the rink was was one that I won't uh, forget. Well, you just said the magic word, uh, Mike. I'm going <laughs> to let you jump in here. Yeah, <laughs> that's my girl too, Sophia. Oh, okay, there she's playing college hockey now, so. <laughs> Oh, right on. She started at age two and 
never looked back. Um, <laughs> you know what? So many great lessons here beyond just our appreciation of hockey history, but your story itself, just so many doors were closing, but you were so passionate and you had such, uh, you knew that this was something that you needed to do and your passion and your drive got to where you are today. And now you're on the second book. It's great lessons for all of us. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. It's yeah, no, I would say if, if I were to give anybody advice, it's just if, if you're passionate about something and you love something enough, you know, put in the time to try to make it happen. You never know where it's going to go. Again, it may not happen the way that you think, but I think you should be patient as well, right? Because again, this has been now uh, like almost a seven year journey for me, right? And again, I wouldn't have thought in a million years that a guy from Sudbury, Ontario would be writing regular stories for, you know, the LA Kings. Um, you know, there's, there's days when I certainly wish that I lived in LA uh, when we have those February <laughs> winters. Uh, but I just, there's just days when I can't help, but just think it's really cool to be doing what I'm doing and being fortunate enough to have enough people who believed in me to give me these opportunities. And so it's just, I would say, yeah, whether it's hockey or whatever else you're passionate about, just pursue that as much as you can. And you, you never know where it could lead. It could lead to all sorts of great opportunities that you yourself might not even envision, but they could lead to, you know, some great things in your life. Yeah, we think it's really cool too. Well, I got to say this before we go. Make sure, please, if you're listening or watching, make sure you check out Mike's book, Hockey 365. It's on Amazon. His new book, Hockey 365, The Second Period, is also available on Amazon for pre-order right now. I've already got mine coming. It's going to be a great gift for the holiday. This is not a paid promotion, I promise you. <laughs> it's just, it's it, look, it's it's just one of those things. You have to have it if you're a hockey fan. I mean, it's it's fun. And like I said, the story for every single day of the year, and soon there'll be two. Um, so listen, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and, uh, I hope we can have you back again when the next book comes out. I'd love to. It was, it was great talking with you all today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. So you've been listening to our kids play hockey for Christy Casciano Burns, Mike Benelli and Mike Camito. I'm Lee Elias. Thanks you for watching. Make sure you guys watch other episodes or check them out on our kids play or you can listen to our podcast, wherever podcasters found, just search for it. You'll find us and, uh, have a great day, everybody. We'll see you next time.